Peter Zahn, good evening. How are you? Or good afternoon in your case. And good morning from Colorado. Excellent. Well, then you definitely, you don't even have an afternoon yet quite yet. Absolutely. Well, uh, fortunately, Colby managed to arrange uh, for you to join us here today, and we're very uh, appreciative that you spend your time with us. Um, people have been following your analysis and to your regular letters on what happens on the ground in Ukraine, but I thought it's a good idea if we could uh, briefly summarize as to why on the geopolitical level we actually ended up in such a situation. Um, how do you want to start? Do you want to give us a brief praise as to what the geopolitical situation is for Ukraine and why we have to deal with um, Putin's Mordor? <laughs> Certainly. Uh, the Russian space is probably the least economically viable, well, not probably, it is the least economically viable agricultural zone on the planet. Uh, so it has very low population density. And they've never been able to generate the capital that's necessary to build a road network, much less what we would consider a modern state. Uh, and in that sort of environment, the only way you can move things is by rail. So the Russian strategy in dealing with all of their great wide opens with almost no people has been to expand out of the territory that is somewhat useful and reach the zones where other entities could enter their space. So the, the Russian space is ringed with a whole lot of mountains and seas and deserts. And if you can plug the access points between those natural barriers, then, as the theory goes, you can have a forward-mounted defense because your troops can't react, they can't maneuver, they can't outfight anyone who manages to get within the Russian core. It's usually the weather that drives them out. But if you can prevent foes from getting in in the first place, well, you know, you can make that stick. And during the Soviet period, the Russians did control every single one of the gateway territories. But with post-Soviet Russia, they only controlled one. And everything that Putin has done since has been about trying to get that forward position, that outer crust again. So that's the why. As for the why now, two things. Uh, number one, the Russian population is quite literally dying out. And this is the last decade that the Russians will have enough men in their 20s to even attempt military options in terms of furthering Russian survival. So it always had to be now. And then there was a tactical issue as well. Uh, if you remember back to the American impeachment hearings, the uh, precipitating event for that was Donald Trump trying to blackmail Zelensky into um, providing dirt on Hunter Biden. And as part of the blackmail, the Trump administration stopped providing Ukraine with military aid. Well, when Joe Biden came in, he restarted it. And November of last year is when the Javelins started to reach the front line in the Donbass. And that sped things into high gear and started the troop buildup, which led to the war that we're in now. Well, um, it's an interesting point you just highlighted. I would even go a tad further as to the tactical mo uh, momentum, given the fact that obviously the buildup has been in the making for quite some time. There's good indication that since uh, the success, as they considered it, by taking Crimea with their little green man and uh, finding out that the Europeans would not resist, would rather negotiate with the alligator, the Russians had seen that there is a potential that they can further disturb and compromise Ukraine and continue to do so, no matter who resists them. What do you say as to the long-term planning? Because obviously, yes, the... Um, fertility situation in Russia and their lack of capacity to um, actually generate sufficient sustenance for their population is fairly well known, and uh, their lack of innovation capacity and therefore the West uh, going further and further forward, whereas they are 
stagnating, if not actually degrading, is evident. What do you think the long-term planning of Mr. Putin has been since he found out in 2008 that we're not taking Ukraine into NATO right away and in 2014 that nobody's resisting? Did we enable him? You, you need to dial a little bit further back because this is not just about Ukraine. Uh, the Russian space, those access points, they're not just on the other side of Ukraine. They're on the other side of the Baltics. They're on the other side of the Caucasus. They're on the other side of Kazakhstan. And Putin's foreign policy, ever since he came in in 1999, has been very clear. It's about getting Russian forces as far forward in those positions as possible. So this is the Georgian War. This is getting troops into Kazakhstan as part of the Nagorno, I'm sorry, as part of the Kazakh intervention last December. This is part of the settlement for the Nagorno-Karabakh War between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, Ukraine actually comes into this a little bit later. Putin did some of the things that he thought would be easier first. And it wasn't until we got to 2008 that we had more direct actions against uh, the Ukrainian state, obviously culminating with the Donbass War in 2014. Uh, so this, this is not something that was done on a whim. This is not just about personal ego. This is about the survival of the Russian ethnicity and the Russian state. Now, whether or not it's going to be successful is a one of those big to-be-determined things. Uh, the Ukrainian military is in the midst of a dramatic transformation, but so is the Russian military. And we're not going to know until the local spring which one of these is going to be more successful. Now, uh, 100%, I tend to agree that essentially the movement towards this is a long, uh, that's a long wave. And as, I mean, we're based here in Tallinn and Estonia, so I can definitely attest to the fact that uh, here in the region, we have always known what is coming, and we've always seen it, and we've tracked it. And by the way, the, uh, when the troops gathered here on the other side, and the troops from uh, Pskov had moved towards Ukraine in October last year, and after the maneuvers didn't recede, it was evident what was coming. And nobody should have had any illusions about it, I'm completely with you. And yes, of course, the fertile grounds of Kazakhstan uh, to be dominated by them and forced to actually generate more agricultural product for the Russians has been one of their key aspects. Now, this brings us to the point is, as we see now that uh, Europe and America have not quite agreed to fully embargo the Russians, what say you about the sanctions? Are we doing enough to degrade the Russian economy and therefore their capacity to replenish their forces and create better logistics for them? And as you just indicated, maybe find ways to procure weapons from China, North Korea and the likes and other sources in order to wield yet another Stalinesque offensive. Well, let me give you this from three points of view. Uh, from the Ukrainian point of view, anything that allows the the Russians to access any tech, any capital, any any equipment, any ammo from anywhere is going to be too much. So there there is no apt, absolutist position where the Ukrainians are getting everything that they feel that they need. It's just that's just not possible. Uh, second, the Europeans have made a series of very poor economic and strategic decisions over the last forty years. There is no way to unwind that in eight months. Europeans are attempting to do this as quickly as possible without completely destroying their economic system. It is not clear that that is possible, especially in the case of Germany. So they are attempting to buy themselves time so that when the cord finally is cut, they have a chance. Now, 
there's a saying in health policy that no health policy that doesn't have support of the population can possibly work. And that's one of the reasons why the United States ultimately let up on its restrictions on COVID, because among the center left in the United States, we had gotten tired. And so the decision was made to just move on despite the cost. And we're seeing some version of that in China right now. It's the same way the war. If the Europeans move faster than their population can tolerate Western support, European support for Ukraine will collapse. So it's a very, very delicate balance. And if you look at Germany specifically, they got 40% of their natural gas from a single pipeline that is no longer there. That happened faster than they were willing to make the change. And as a result, we are looking down the maw of the complete deindustrialization of the German model. A year from now, when it becomes apparent that there isn't going to be a manufacturing sector in the country, what level of support do you think the Germans are going to be capable of? There's a lot of stress in the relationship. One of the upsides of having 50-odd countries in Europe is it's difficult for anyone to dominate. One of the downsides is that everyone has their own interests and it's difficult to make a decision, especially when the country that's at the center of all that economically has been the core of everything for decades suddenly can't function. Now, from the American point of view, if you're willing to take a completely amoral position, because obviously this is a morally compromised statement, this is going very well. Not only are the Russians basically hurling themselves on the ramparts and dying in the thousands, but they are bleeding dry the ammo depot of the entire Soviet legacy complete with everything in Iran and North Korea. And if you fast forward 10, 15 years from now, assuming for the moment that the Russians don't just have a runaway success, fast forward 10 to 15 years from now, almost every signal national security threat to the United States is in the, in the midst of imploding right now. Now, the United States cannot support Ukraine without the Germans. Logistically, that just isn't possible. So the trick moving forward is how to keep the Germans in the game when economically the Germans can no longer be in the game. And that's a crisis for next year. Well, Peter, this is where I would like to differentiate this a little bit because obviously Germany has moved on. It has managed to get LNG capacity up. We have now three terminals upcoming. Obviously, the Germans are far too late. Don't get me wrong. I, 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 dis I disagree with what you're saying yeah, and fine. where you're leading. Let, is, let me lead yeah, up to I mean, the question we, and then we'll, we'll get through it. Sure. They have okay. the scarcity. They do not, and I agree with you on the point, before you disagree, I do agree with you on the point that they are... They are at the cusp of failing by not reactivating at least two of the three shut down nuclear power plants and phasing out others. That's a major mistake in their setup and their energy policy is at fault for it. Absolutely. They do have the opportunity still to procure more LNG, but they need to speed up the build out of two of the three terminals. They can replace a lot of their energy needs but it will be to the detriment of Europe because it will change European um, grid system. It will change how prices in Europe develop. And even if Germany manages to continue to, um, say, battle with higher energy prices, which is a self-inflicted problem, they shouldn't have them, even then it will impair Europe. And that, as I quite agree with you, is amoral from a German perspective, and it would be amoral for the United States as transatlantic friends to let the Germans go down that garden path? Well, let me give you the bad and then let me give you the worse. So first, the bad. 
the marginal price, or I'm sorry, the price of any energy market is set by marginal supply and marginal demand. Uh, it's an inelastic market. So if you have a movement of only five to 10% in terms of supply or demand, you can have an outsized impact on price of two to 300% very, very easily. In losing Nord Stream, the Germans have lost not a marginal supplier, but their main supplier, 40% of the total. And the bulk of the rest comes from pipelines through Ukraine proper in a war that is now an artillery exchange. So that stuff's not going to be around for much longer either. That means that even though they are now bringing on new LNG import capacity, it doesn't matter. They have replaced the volumes, yes, but from a number of marginal suppliers, seven of them to be specific. And that means that even in an environment where industrial demand has been deliberately curtailed, and in public spaces, the heat is off and everyone else is rationing and the reserves, the storage are completely full in one of the warmest winters on record. They still have domestic natural gas prices that are six times what they were before the war. That is not going to change until such time as they get a mainline supplier and mainline cannot be liquefied natural gas. The closest potential mainline supplier to Germany is Nigeria. And that would require a 3,000 kilometer pipeline. That is a 25 year infrastructure project. That is the best case scenario. And there's more to natural gas than electricity. Even if the Germans turned on all of their nuclear power plants again, <clears throat> I still don't think that would cut it because the natural gas is primarily used in Germany, not for electricity, but for petrochems. And that petrochem is what allows their manufacturing sector to exist. That is currently offline. BASF is in the process of physically dismantling their German industrial bases and relocating them to other countries in the hope that they can source extra continental natural gas to build petrochemical products to then ship home to Germany to save the manufacturing model. That would require an industrial build out outside of Germany, specifically in places like Louisiana, that occurs more quickly than what the Germans did at the height of World War II. Color me skeptical. Yeah, but um, BASF is not doing that. They have, it's one of their planning proposals, which have gone through the last supervisory board meeting, as some of us will know. Having said this, uh, there's a high risk that they may actually have to follow through, but they can't take the cracker away quite yet. And then there's the question as to whether, and this is where I would beg to differ that the nuclear power plants can change a great deal as to the overall pricing. The question, and there I agree with you, the mainline supply, is an issue, but there are ways of dealing with it, and they would not be alternative energy. Um, I think that the Germans will be able to buy from a variety of suppliers sufficient uh, gas for their own purposes, but it actually it hits the rest of Europe more than anything else. And this is where the immoral position is. Uh, I wanted to lay, lay that out because I think it's not just the Americans who could technically lean back and say, let this play out. That would be unfair. I don't think that our transatlantic friends have ever actually done that in any shape or form, because whenever something was needed in Europe, they came to save us. We, the Americans can't fix the price situation. We can help with the supply situation, but we are going to be a marginal supplier. The price situation requires a new baseline material or baseline supply, and that's just not available. And then, and then there's the worst part. This was always going to be the decade when the German workforce aged past the point of being productive, when it ages into mass retirement. We, we've always known that the German industrial model was going to end this decade. We've always known we were going to get here. The energy crisis is just speeding it up. So we work. We are at the end of Germany as the heart of Europe in an economic sense. We don't have a model for what is next. 
And for Ukraine to prevail in this war, someone, probably the Americans, but someone has to find a way to prop Germany up long enough for Ukraine to win the day. That's the challenge of next year. Peter, how about shale gas in Ukraine? Mm, it's a possibility. Uh, here, here's the issue. When, when the shale revolution really got to going in the United States back in 2004 to 2007, it was all about natural gas. And after 2008, we found a way to apply the technology and modify it to a different, slightly different geology. And then it became an oil story. We're now in the process of kind of going through a second natural gas revolution in the United States. But a couple things you have to keep in mind if you want to apply this stuff to somewhere else. Uh, first, the technology has to be adapted to the geology. You just can't pull it out of a box and put it into a new energy field and expect it to be producing in a few months. So the geology of the eastern Ukrainian basin is significantly different than what we have in the Appalachians or West Texas or North Dakota. So even in the best case scenario, you'd be talking about a four to 10 year process because that's how long it took here. Second, there has been a lot of attempts between 2010 and 2016 to try to do that adaptation. And it turned out that a lot of the petroleum fields in Ukraine are either deeper or less petroleum dense or the shale porosity wasn't quite right. And from an American point of view, the Eastern Ukrainian deposits just aren't economically viable with the technology that the Americans are bringing to the table. Now, it's not a, quite as bad as it sounds. Uh, you can do extend, you can extend the life of existing fields. You can achieve better efficiencies in terms of the output, but you're never going to get the same sort of boom that we saw in places like Texas or North Dakota or Pennsylvania. The geology just isn't there. And some version of that story now has played out in almost every potential shale field that we had identified back in the 2000s. There are a few that have turned out to be okay. Uh, the Sichuan Basin in China specifically, um, the Vaca Basin in Argentina, there's some stuff in Northern Mexico that looks pretty good. And then there's some stuff in the Bazanov Shale in Russia that really hasn't been poked at yet. It's really kind of the last big unknown. But we now know that replicating the shale revolution really anywhere in the world, certainly at the scale that the Americans experience, just isn't in the cards. Now, but in terms of, a, a, say, diverse energy mix in that regard, uh, sorry, the diverse supply mix, uh, shale gas opportunities all across Europe exist, many of them. And that can... Not really. Well, uh, again, it's the, the same problem. It's the technology... We, we've discovered that the technology just can't be applied in its current form to most of the basins. There are pockets, pockets where it might work. There's some in Poland, there's some in France, uh, there's a couple in Lithuania, uh, and there might be a few in North Africa. But you're not Ukraine, talking Peter? about the... Uh, in the Netherlands, no. Well, they are uh, you can maybe it. use some of the tech... You can use some of the technologies to achieve a higher rate of recovery from existing projects. But the sort of shale density that we associate with the air quotes shale revolution in the United States just does not exist. Well, as to the shale density in the Wattenmeer, there's at least two locations where they're currently doing it, where the density is sufficient. But I agree with you. Of course, it's not comparable to what you have in the United States. Uh, but uh, we've seen that significant volumes now coming in that, in that regard. Question is for Ukraine, because I think a lot of the solutions for all the issues which we're seeing 
is in Ukraine. There's an underutilized, very innovative, very well qualified uh, population. Ukraine has massive amount of natural resources. There is shale gas in Ukraine. There's a couple of discussions to be had about it. And there's gas in the Black Sea. Wouldn't it be smarter for Europe to accelerate um, their support together with the United States and the, in, within the coalition of the willing to help Ukraine win this war quickly, to bring it to an end? I don't think energy exploration is going to do that. The Black Sea is arguably the second most difficult operating environment in the world. It, it's steep. It's deep. There's a sulfur layer. There's a hypoxic layer. And ultimately, you're talking about drilling two kilometers under the ocean. So the sort of upfront capital infrastructure necessary for that is high, and it's all in a conflict zone. So no, one, no one's going to bring in a deep sea rig that's going to have to be stationary in order to generate energy during a war. That's just not going to happen. In terms of Peter, sorry, apologies. Energy, I didn't I, mean in, in the war. I mean, uh, my question to you oh. was, would it not be strategically sensible and tactically astute to accelerate winning the war in order to enforce a peace in the region so that these investments can be made in future? Whew, well, now that's a, that's a thorny, thorny question. Um, from an American and a European point of view, the idea of the Russians uh, depleting their entire arsenal and this being the last war that Russia ever fights, you know, there's a certain attractiveness to that from a completely amoral point of view. Anything that forces a Russian defeat militarily in the short term leaves the Russian military complex more or less intact. And I realize we have found out that it is not all that. But if you can end Russia's capacity to fight a war, there's a big argument to say that's the goal here. Because if you don't, if you, if you force a peace, regardless of what that looks like on the ground, the Russians will be back. And as we've seen again and again and again throughout Russian history, the first year is always a shit show. And then they throw enough bodies at it to make a difference. If you can bleed those bodies away in the Donbass next year, then Russia can be broken for all time. And that is not specifically an issue of getting the Ukrainians this or that piece of technology. That's about making sure that the Russians have enough rope to hang themselves. And right now, we are moving in that direction. Whether it will work is another question. Now, as to the broader question that you're asking about energy, the smart play would be for the Germans to unwind a lot of their energy policy when it comes to domestic production at home. They have fallen hook like sinker boat and marina for Russian propaganda and have largely shut down all energy exploration and production within their own country. If they were just to get back to where they were in the year 2000, they would have to import about half as much from the wider world as they do now. And that would be a big strategic win for everybody, except for the Russians, obviously. And if you were to exp uh, expand this even further as a graph, you could go back to the end of the 1970s, where essentially Germany was only dependent for about 10 percent in terms of uh, gas imports from Russia, which is when the whole mess had started, by the way. Uh, that, that might be a bit of an overstatement, but only a bit. Uh, German energy consumption since the 1970s has obviously increased significantly as the, as the economy has developed. And they have become more energy intensive as their industrial base has expanded. Uh, there isn't a lot um, of production capacity that could potentially be brought on in a short period of time throughout Europe. 
and a lot of the geology really is tapped out. I mean, the Europeans do import almost 90% of their energy as a unit right now, if you remove the North Sea from the equation, which is a special case. Uh, they might be able to get that from 90 down to 70, or maybe even 60, and that's a huge step forward. But that does not really solve any of the overarching issues unless you're also going to go through a significant deindustrialization process, which is what I think we're going to see for Central Europe. How do you see then uh, the last steps of um, uh, Mr. Draghi in his office in Italy prior to Italy descending into the election campaign, where he had done a remarkable bit of pipeline, um, say, diplomacy and harnessed Italy's position with uh, North African nations, including Algeria? Some flavor of pipeline diplomacy has defined Rome's geopolitical position since 2000. It doesn't matter if it's about NATO, doesn't matter if it's about Russia, doesn't matter if it's about uh, the Persian Gulf. Getting the energy from somewhere uh, is what it is. And it's not just about Italy. Uh, Italy is Europe's largest refining complex. They can take crude streams from anywhere and, and blend them in order to get something that their refining complex, which is very varied, uh, can then turn into user-friendly products for pretty much everyone within Europe. If, if, if the Italians fail at this, then we get a second phase to the energy crisis in Europe, because then they will have lost the Italian hub and the German sources at more or less the same time. And what we're seeing is that if the Russians are not part of the solution for Russian energy, then the Italians all of a sudden really have to up their game. And the only, only, only option in the midterm that is even remotely proximate is Italy or is, um, is Libya. The classic and supply Libya, for Italy. I know. And, and unless Libya can be wrestled into some sort of more functional shape and how you do that without European troops on the ground, then we're talking about the second largest source for the Europeans going away. And that, I would say, is the second-tier risk that no one in Europe is really priced in. Well, that's what we're talking about it just now, and that's why I wanted to highlight it, that uh, what Mr. Draghi did was he did the absolute necessary at that point in time when it became critical. He knew that uh, his coalition, uh, sorry, his support within the polity of Italy uh, was fading. He knew he was at risk, but he did exceptionally well in actually maintaining a position which brought him to the point where the Italy is now, that it can actually still work. Fingers crossed. I mean, there's <laughs> uh, Italy, is a, Italy is an ongoing exercise in what is possible and shouldn't be possible and can't be possible all at the same time. Isn't it wonderful? It's part of its absolute beauty. I totally agree. <laughs> we have, by the way, someone who has uh, Italian descent in him, our uh, co-founder Yehuda. Welcome. And thanks for coming, Peter. Yes. Uh, my pleasure. It's one of the, the, the uh, nice, the strange coincidences that is modern-day Italy. Um, people often ask, how does it function? Uh, a mix of rules and a mix of cultures, I guess. Right. It functions differently. Yeah, I know. I mean, being, you know, living most of my life in North America, going back and visiting family in Italy, you wonder, how does this, how does this state function? It seems like there's more money going out than goes in. But anyway, it works. Who knows? It works after a fashion. Uh, one of the things to keep in mind about Italy and people in North America really have a hard time processing this. Is, you know, we think of Europe as being having been around for a while and being stable. 
But the Italian unification process came very late, even by European standards. And unlike the Germans who kind of did their reunification in the same time in the, in the 1880s, the, uh, the Italians never really federalized in the same way. So urban, civic, local control has always been a much higher uh, propensity uh, than it ever has been in Germany or the United States, much less a more unity, unified system, say, like France or the Netherlands. Uh, and because of that, having a national policy, especially after World War II, became almost impossible. So the fact that every once in a while someone like uh, Prodi or Berlusconi or now Maloney uh, can actually have a national policy is actually kind of a win all to itself. And in a time of strategic breakdown, where the EU is discovering that it doesn't have all the tools that it needs, the spotlight really gets put on the geographies where something needs to happen in a different way to save Europe. And that means that the Italians are going to be right in the middle of all of the discussions very soon, and not because of budgetary issues, because of strategic issues. And that's going to yeah, be a lot of fun to watch on the outside. And internally, Italy is still a very fragmented, uh, you know, as you said, hasn't adopted the federalism so much, being uh, partially from the south and then the north. Uh, the differences can't be understated, and uh, it's a miracle. I mean, obviously, internally, the image is the north pulls the south's weight. Part of it's part of it's true um, to a degree, uh, but also there's standard of livings in, in Italy that people appreciate, and that's why they all come south for their vacations. I guess it isn't so bad after all. Well, and one of the great mysteries uh, of Italy is, you know, the South has the reputation in part accurately for being a little bit backwards, uh, the countryside for being relatively empty. And in the North, on a per work hour, per hour worked basis, Italian workers are much more efficient than Northern Germans. Uh, so to have all of this in one political system is honestly kind of a riot. One thing that's interesting, a lot of people don't know, and sorry to just talk about Italy so much, is... Uh, <laughs> my own mother there um they're they're you know technically from a small village in the central highlands of central sicily um there was a time obviously that you i didn't think there was a future for sicily and, and since the late 90s especially in the on the noughties there we're looking at entire segments of uh, sicilian workers flying to milan for the week and coming home on a friday uh, and, and it, it's actually revitalized a lot of sicilian um, communities. So uh, cheap travel, cheap air travel, things like that. Um, it's a definitely, it's an interesting, it's a strange dynamic. Can you, can you imagine someone from New York, I don't know, from Florida flying to New York every week to work? Actually, yeah. any place where you have a significant economic uh, disparity within the same political unit, you'll get that happen. So you get Newfoundlanders working in the Calgary and energy sector. You get people from right. South Carolina who literally fly into New York, as you described, for the week but then live in South Carolina because it's cheaper and that quality of life is higher. Uh, it's not a new phenomenon, uh, but having a state airline that provides cheap flights certainly helps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that doesn't hurt. And also, this is from a culture where, you know, I, I literally know cousins who have not ventured to the town five kilometers east because they talk stupid and no one likes them and it's not <laughs> tribal, right? I'm like, you know, if you're, oh, that guy... Is from such and such a town, and, and and yet they're getting on a plane and flying to Milan for work. It's it's hilarious. Uh, I'll pass it back to Axel and Colby. Thanks so much for being here, Peter. No problem. All righty, Colby. I think we wanted to move on to other shores, right?
Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, Peter, I'm curious about uh, how you think China fits into Russia's uh, invasion here. Uh, we get a lot of questions from the audience about China's role and the degree to which they are supporting Russia. And it seems like it's been pretty muted, not a whole lot of overt material support, uh, not a whole lot of Chinese weapons uh, turning up or things of that nature, not even the Chinese MREs that were reportedly requested very early on in the war haven't seen made those uh, those make an appearance yet either. So I'm curious uh, what you estimate sort of Beijing's view is of the, the overall war and uh, how they're how they're responding. It's it's a bit schizophrenic, or it sounds a bit schizophrenic because it is. Uh, there's two things that are shaping the discussion in Beijing, and if anything, discussion is the wrong word. Uh, first of all, obviously, the Chinese would prefer a world where the Russians are more potent and the Western alliance breaks and the Americans just go home and never come back and preferably die. Uh, but strategically and economically, that has never been on the table uh, not because the Americans have a firm plan, but because the Chinese rise is 100% dependent upon the Americans maintaining globalization, more or less in the form that it's been in for the last 30 years. The Chinese demographic is an advanced collapse. We are in the final decade of the Chinese nation. And well, that's a little overstated. We're in the final decades of the Chinese having a population structure that allows them to have an economy that we would recognize as an economy. The Chinese are completely dependent upon the Americans maintaining freedom of the seas in order to import the raw materials and the energy that allow their system to function. And they're completely dependent upon the Americans maintaining open waterways so they can export their finished products to end customers around the world, most notably in the United States. So without the Americans being open, the Chinese system fails anyway. And they need the Americans to leave the system open and gradually transfer power over to China so that the Chinese dream can happen in the way that the Chinese imagined it. To say that that is a likely outcome is, you know, silly, but that has been the plan from the beginning. The challenge they're facing now is twofold. Number one, the Americans are done. Uh, the restrictions on Chinese trade, especially in tech, are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And with the very successful financial sanctions that the Europeans, Japanese, and Americans put together, the yuan really is an island now, and it's just not used as a method of exchange. Uh, the Russians even tried to use it, and it turns out that they just lost all the money because when they tried to cash it out, the Chinese were like, no, we really don't want the yuan back. So they just lost a half a trillion dollars when they tried it. Uh, in terms of the other problem, that's purely domestic, and that's that Chairman Xi has consolidated his power in a cult of personality far tighter than anything we have ever seen before in human history, even worse than the, uh, the Kim Dynasty in North Korea. So the capacity of the Chinese system to adapt to reality is proven to be fractured at best. So they want the Russians to win, but they also know they dare not cross certain lines that Washington has for fear of the entire Chinese economic structure collapsing. But the capacity to thread the needle requires an open, honest approach and information management within the system that no longer exists. So we're getting this weird double ossification and that they're locked into the ideological battle with the United States. But they're also locked into a strategic environment that requires American help. 
And they're locked into ideological commitment for the Russians, but they're locked into a strategic position that prevents them from helping. And the result is this complete ossification of decision-making on all sides, which is starting to leak over into the economic sphere in the Chinese system. And what we're seeing with the COVID restrictions and their sudden unwinding is really kind of just the leading edge of what we should expect to see next year. Short version, it's a mess. And it's going to get a lot worse before it even pretends to get better. Hey, Peter, I'm so glad you said that about China. You know, there, there are a lot of people who've looked at American policy vis-a-vis China for a long time and shaken their heads and said, you know, you're letting them take your lunch, basically. It's not, it's not the front. I'm sure you've heard many economists say that. Uh, even certain past presidents have said it a little more crudely. Um, and uh, what's interesting is that, you know, uh, the uh, WTO and Western countries looking the other way to the seemingly uh, arbitrary uh, valuation of the UN and, and people saying, oh, this isn't fair. And I, I kind of wonder if this wasn't, I'm not thinking it's a conspiracy by the United States, but definitely um, the United States and other Western powers recognized that China was doing that. And it was a, it probably on balance uh, more beneficial to the West than it was to China. But I think maybe perhaps give China a false sense of security that they had more cards in their hand than they did. And now they're realizing that they're, as you just said, they're very constricted by that economic policy that they themselves weaved. Isn't that a fair assessment? Uh, I would say you need to dial. I mean, I don't think you're wrong. I just think you need to dial out a little bit bigger. Uh, Remember that the whole reason that Nixon went to visit Mao in China was to break the Cold War impasse and make sure that the Soviet Union didn't have the opportunity to expand on multiple fronts. By, By flipping China into part of a globalized coalition against the Soviet Union, we set in, well, we, like I was around then, uh, Nixon and then ultimately Carter and Reagan flipped the script and they made it in, inevitable that the Soviet system was going to collapse and they would have made nuclear war a choice rather than a strategic necessity. And that gave us the world of the 1990s. So there was always a vested interest at the top in Washington in trying to see if they could make China part of the international system. Because it had worked once. If it had worked on the strategic angle, you know, maybe it can work on the post-Cold War economic angle as well. Now, was that over-optimistic? Was that over-ambitious? You know, looking back on it, obviously we would say yes. But until relatively recently, probably five years ago, I was still of the opinion that maybe, 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 maybe the Chinese really can change and we can do this all together. Do you think things have evolved? Do you think that that trade, that liberalization through trade is, is dead or was it ever not dead in the water? There are plenty of cases where it has worked, but there's always been a political element to it. So, for example, it clearly, clearly worked very well in Italy and Japan and Germany. But those countries were occupied after World War II. So they all saw broad scale ground up political overfalls. And, you know, we, we should be thrilled personally that the Germans think of themselves as socialist pacifists because we know what the alternative looks like. So with China, though, in specific, then do you think that was ever an, an, op- an option, a possibility? With the benefits of hindsight, no. But like I said, up until five years ago, I was still holding that hope. I was definitely part of the crowd that thought that globalization would work a lot of wonders. I was maybe a little bit more sanguine about it than a lot of people in the business community. But we, collectively we, overhauled what had been a genocidal government and turned it to a bastion of liberalism in the heart of Europe. That was a huge achievement. 
to think that there couldn't be a follow-on success would have been a little odd. Yeah, and, but the only I, but you you you've said the same thing we've been saying here about Russia, for example, and about and the, we talked about the denazification of Germany post World War Two, and people, you know, we've roundly you know commented that there was no de-Sovietization of Russia because it was never occupied, right. right? It was they gave it up, and, and that's the same thing with China. As yeah, that, that political element was never there. Yeah, and that's a drive. That's a bigger driving force than maybe we uh, might have calculated as a group. Interesting. Uh, you know, but you can. Sorry, you know, you can. Also, uh, requires culture to exist in the first place. And well, the Russians. Have, I mean, the Russians have no culture unfair. in that regard. That's I mean, a local. You, the, the Russians you have a very different because. culture. At, you described the yourself. Russians have oh, a very yeah, different no culture, and I, I didn't mean to suggest it would be easy. Yeah. Not even for a second would I suggest it would be easy. But look at the situation in Germany, 1945. Look at, I mean, if you want to, some really interesting reading, go back and read local media anytime from 1937 to 1945 to see what Western, Western being not German, like Western European, opinions on German culture was and why this is a country that has to just be crushed and destroyed for all times because they cannot change. To say that no other country is capable of cultural change is a bit of a reach. I don't mean to suggest it would have been easy or quick or had much of a chance of success. But just to say that the chance is zero, that's a stretch. Uh, I didn't say that. I'm sorry. Let me differentiate this. The culture which existed in Central Europe, the culture of the Enlightenment, the long-standing culture which made it easier for Italians and Germans to come back to those roots which existed prior to the First World War, let's put it this way, and the upheavals which came through the wars and their own uh, misfortunate decision-making and stupidity, this is a different trail, this is a completely different trail culturally than coming from a Tsarist authoritarian regime and culture. I agree, but then you have to explain why the situation in Taiwan, Korea, Thailand, and Japan has worked out so differently. If anything, yeah. they had a political system that was more unitary and, you know, to use a very loaded Western term, barbarous than what we had in Russia. Well, it was. Yeah. I, I think, I think you would have said occupation. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that was the key factor. I mean, the, the differences will, well, once, let's, let's, if you were to think of Russia being, you know, destroying itself and being destroyed by, you know, Ukraine and being dislodged from all of Ukraine, uh, I think the question would be, would it, would it reform on its own? And I think Peter is right. Like, there is a chance, for sure there's a chance. You can't say they have no culture. They have a very different culture. Um, one that we don't agree with, for sure. But, uh, yeah. I, I, so, I guess something I to keep. Something to keep in mind about the Russians is that they have, on multiple occasions in their history, made this exact attempt. They go through phases of Eurasianism and Westernization, and it, it expands in one direction until it cracks, and then expands into the other direction. And, and I think this has happened nine times. Uh, what is unique about Vladimir Putin is he started as a Westernizer, and then he realized around 2003, 2004 that it was never going to happen, and he switched. Yeah, I was going to say earlier, just before Axel jumped in, you know, some countries like, you know, when it comes to China, some countries have been accused of maybe being over too, too, um, too wishful in their thinking, right? Through trade liberalization with China and then, uh, the fears that we're just giving them too much of the cake and get nothing out of it. So it's funny because when it comes to Taiwan, one of the first things a lot of us here, Peter, said when the war in this latest invasion kicked off uh, in Ukraine is that the Chinese are going bananas because 
everything they're like no our plans are falling apart you know they're like wait this isn't a week or two this is this is crazy and europe is getting on board and sweden and finland are joining nato uh how <laughs> how how crazy because they're thinking to themselves we want to do this to taiwan what happens if new processes are in place that really affect us when when we want to go for taiwan after there's a genocide in ukraine and it comes to the public's attention um, I, I would think that Xi, Xi, Xi Jinping is furious at Putin for throwing a wrench in his plans with Taiwan. What about you? Uh, it's difficult to know what Xi is thinking because he doesn't confide in anyone anymore. Uh, and there's very little information exchange, even at the top of the Chinese system. Uh, but assuming for the moment that he has sufficient information to make a decision, yeah, I would be pissed too. But, you know, if anything, he probably should be grateful. The Chinese have been planning for an assault on Taiwan for 40 years. And when you prepare over that sort of time frame, you have to make certain assumptions about how the war would go and what you need to plan for and what the other side's strengths and weaknesses are. And what the Ukraine war has shown us is that the Chinese have guessed wrong in every single assumption. They now know that the war would not be quick. They now know that Russian equipment is not as good as they thought it was. And so the three trillion U.S. they've spent on it was a waste. They now know that the world actually has an opinion. And if the world is willing to sanction Russia, which is one of the world's largest suppliers of food and energy, well, that it would be what are they, well, China. What, what are they going to do with importers? Yeah. I'm sorry? What are they going to imagine what they're going to do with iPhones? Do you see what I mean? Like, yeah. Right? Well, they won't I mean, be able to make them for one. There you uh, go. Now, but but that's the funny I, thing is, I've always been of the opinion that the war over Taiwan wasn't very likely because the Chinese just don't have the technical technical acumen to do it. An amphibious assault uh, across the Formosa Straits is is not a small thing. They don't have an amphibious assault fleet that could do it. Their plan, in order to not give the Taiwanese chance to a chance to cobble together a nuke is to literally just text all of their soldiers and say, go to the nearest port, hijack a fishing vessel, and sail your way there to the beach. You know, they would probably lose a million men just on the crossing. And what yeah. the Ukraine war has shown them is that even if they won, it would de-industrialize China and they would have a famine in, a, in no time because they import most of their energy and most of the things that allow them to make their food, in addition to being the world's largest food importer. So th there's nothing about this that would have worked out. And now knowing that for sure, if anything, provides a degree of strategic clarity. The, the, the challenge here is whether or not G realizes that because he no longer has anyone in the inner circle who will tell him anything other than what he wants to hear. And obviously information exchange within the Chinese spaces, how should we say, somewhat restricted on a good day. Why do you think the, uh, I mean, when we talk about sanctions, uh, there's some great economists in the States and his name, one of those fellows, I forget his name, uh, amazing. Um, no, he's not on, he's not on TV enough, but he said, uh, with respect to China, if China was to kick off, he goes, sanctions would, wouldn't, you wouldn't see sanctions taking a few months to take effect. China is much more, um, vulnerable to sanctions from the West, especially if they see the West unite completely for Ukraine. What are they going to feel about Taiwan? So do you, you think saying, you know, some kind of crippling sanctions regime would take effect much quicker in China? Well, I mean, we're talking if, 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 if then here, but yes, I would expect that it would take place in a matter of hours to days instead of months to years because China is just so completely dependent upon the strategic largesse of the United States in order to keep its people fed and the lights on. If, if you break that relationship by going for Taiwan, 
I mean, it's an open question whether even if you get it, there's anything worth it uh, that would make it worth the pain. But you would be talking about the end of Japan as an industrialized power. And you would be talking about that happening in under 12 months. Colby, I just want to kick it back. Uh, This is such an interesting discussion. I think it's one of these interconnected issues that uh, people kind of ignore because uh, I think China could have gone a certain way. India could have gone a certain way. Um, and, uh, Russia, Russia doesn't have even the, the bad friends that thought it has. Uh, if, if I may, I mean, um, the, raising this very interesting question of why, um, actually Taiwan and, and perhaps, uh, um, uh, Republic of Korea, uh, democratized and when westernized, when, um, when they weren't occupied, well, you could argue that perhaps uh, the Republic of Korea was was uh, sort of occupied because of the uh, joint um, defense agreement, but Taiwan wasn't. And sure. I, I think I think really that has to. Um, uh, we probably have to thank uh, you know this this whole um, uh, the, e- even with martial law going on for so long, you know after. Um, after retreat from uh, from China, uh, there was this whole um, education process. Uh, when you when you go to civics classes, when when the KMT was uh, was forcing that on everybody, uh, they were teaching the the three people's principles, which was uh, Sun Yat-sen's whole um, whole philosophy about uh, democracy. And and you know you uh, like it or not, with all the Taiwan nationalists, you know, uh, poo pooing the KMT. That probably that probably built the um, the basis for a population where where at least they knew the basics of um, of of what the democratic society could be, and then when I think when you know Jiang Jingguo uh, opened it up and ended martial law, uh, that started the process where where you know it was just natural that everybody uh, when when you no longer have a secret police monitoring and and forcing people to uh, to toe the line, it's a natural process for people to want to have representation. And and when that you know when that took on a life of its own, just having just having one opposition party, uh, the whole um, the whole apparatus of um, of totalitarian or authoritarian control just went went by the wayside. These conditions never existed in China. Uh, I, I was I was in China quite frequently during during one very hopeful period. And I, I think um, I, I think what what Peter was referring to when there were actually uh, there were actually uh, elections uh, in the local councils. There, um, oh, so, yeah. God, that feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> it wasn't it. <laughs> and, but but, you know, but when you have a corrupt system, when you have basically uh, you know, still one party rule, uh, that just didn't give you the, uh, the, uh, the, the environment in order to nurture that, uh, to actually threaten central authority. So, yeah, I mean, every country democratized is going to get their, their own way. And there are certain things that can certainly speed it around. You can have a rule of law, which China has never had. They have law by rule. And I'd argue that the Russians have never had it. Uh, you need to have a degree of economic capacity so that people have the freedom to plan for the future. And, and that's one of the reasons why the, the Arab world writ large just has not done well outside of Tunisia. And even in Tunisia, it's been a little touch and go from time to time. Because if you're 
concerned about what you're going to get for your next meal, your next day. You're not thinking about a mortgage. And until you can get a middle class that actually has a vested interest in political stability, uh, upheaval does not do well with democratic norms. China just is, is trying to get the second one. But I think what we're seeing now with the general breakdown of globalization is most Chinese are now realize that that is probably out of reach. If you throw that into the general demographic situation where if you're one of a handful of people who's alive in China who's under age 30, you now know that you also are fighting a gerontocracy. And in that sort of environment, I mean, in the United States, I'm a Gen Xer. We bitch about the baby boomers because they can outvote us for anything. But can you imagine if in the United States there were fewer millennials than Gen X and fewer Zoomers than millennials and the boomers held all the wealth and they insisted on voting on everything. I mean, that, that's now the best case scenario for the Chinese. And if you are younger, you, you know you will never be part of the system. You will never benefit from the system. That's a challenge they're going to be dealing with oh, for the next year or two that Pete, I haven't really started on yet. You, yeah. you have, Peter, you have. Oh, sorry. Peter, there's a question from the audience, uh, and it's, uh, it's a, we, get, we get this a bit. How does, how does the West circumvent um, you know, future problems from China and the person was referencing uh, divestment, people moving those iPhone, I'm, just, I'm picking on an iPhone, I, I mean anything, uh, moving sure. those factories to Indonesia, Malaysia, maybe not Vietnam, too close to China, who knows. Um, is it, and, and, if, and if that is a solution, why hasn't it been done? Well, that's a messy one. Um, and just if you want, if you, can, yeah, you, no, can you use Italy? Yeah, so Italy did, Italy, there were, there were noises out of Italy after COVID kicked off about uh, Wuhan being open to Milan and saying time to move move factories out. I don't know if they ended up following through with it. Maybe you know, but I don't know. Sorry, go ahead. There were, there were some of that. Um, to say that there's an overarching Western plan for China implies that there's an overarching Western plan for anything. And honestly, the degree of agreement that we've had in the West on, on Ukraine has been spectacular and unprecedented. And I'd argue probably not replicable. <laughs> Uh, the Chinese have been the best advocates for overall anti-Chinese sentiment. The whole warrior wolf diplomacy was designed in China to beat the nationalist drum to unify the population. And in doing that, it was broadly successful, but it did so at the cost of alienating pretty much everyone who matters around the world. Uh, the challenge we're facing now, the challenge the Chinese are facing now, is that they're no longer economically viable. Uh, the demographic decline is so far advanced and that the cost of Chinese labor is so high that anyone who is a reshored or friend short or deshort or whatever shore you want to use, any aspect of the supply chain is doing much better. And what we're going to see in the next couple of months is are these mass disruptions as COVID just rips through the population and probably kills millions. And that's going to make it very, very easy for anyone who wants to move stuff out of China to do it because the alternative is to not have stuff. Uh, in the case of iPhone, which is, in my opinion, a really good kind of proxy for this because Apple is the American company that has doubled, tripled, and quadrupled down on China at every opportunity, regardless of what the warning sign is. We're going to have supply chain disruptions that are going to last for years because you don't rebuild 90% of your supply chain in a different country or series of countries in anything but a multi-year time frame. Uh, so economics are taking care of this for us before we start thinking of national security and government policy. Now, we're still having that as well. 
and the Biden administration to force American citizens working in the Chinese semiconductor sector to choose between their jobs and their citizenship is a great example of how all of this can turn on a dime. It is very easy, very, very, very easy for a even half implemented policy in the Western world to have outsized and damning effects across the Chinese system because they really are dependent upon everyone on the outside for their markets and their resource access and their technology. And it doesn't take much of a conscious effort to break any part of that. So we're now seeing the demographic situation and this kind of strategic awakening, if that's the right word, all at the same time that China has descended into a cult of personality driven by nationalist narcissism. And none of this ends well for the Chinese. 100%. Sorry, Ray, you wanted to chime in again there. I, uh... oh, oh, no, you, you, you brought up something else that, that's, uh, that's just also fascinating. I think, I think yes, uh, you know, the, the, the communists will claim credit for sort of improving the livelihoods of, uh, of, of, of the population in China. But uh, I, I think, Peter, you, you pointed out that uh, wages have gone up, you know, so significantly, whereas uh, um, productivity is only doubled. And isn't this going to mean that uh, basically the economics is just going to drive the uh, uh, drive the factories uh, out to uh, uh, other uh, sort of more favorable places, um, especially? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny. We've had the crackdown on Hakdan. We've had a documented genocide that everyone outside of Chinese state media agrees on. We've got the war uh, drums going on Taiwan. We've got support for a genocidal war in Russia. And the business community, for the most part, is like, yeah, you know, this isn't part of our problem. But now that the economics of labor have shifted, oh, now we're seeing the shift. So it's it's one of those that the regions have always been there. We've always known that this relationship was going to implode in time. And now we're here. Peter, do you uh, see any possibility of the United States eventually uh, looking at getting back into the TPP deal as a mechanism to sort of uh, uh, do that diversification that uh, Yehuda was talking about? Oh, well, that would definitely be the smart play. Um, I, I think one of the biggest one of the biggest disappointments that I have in American politics over the last several years is when Hillary Clinton, who negotiated the TPP, decided to campaign against it in order to get the populist vote. Uh, there was an opportunity there for the business community to shift from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. And from a purely strategic political point of view, that might have been a good time to make that push. Uh, she obviously chose to go the other direction. And so now both parties are shaped by populist forces, if not actually dictated by that. Now, we will get through this process. We are going through a political reshuffling in the United States, and everything's kind of up in the air. You throw in social media, it gets very loud, very proud, very angry. Uh, and this is the seventh time we've done this, and we will get through it. But at the moment, national security conservatives and the business conservatives are no longer part of either governing coalition. And until they land somewhere it is difficult for me to see the United States having a trade policy that is anything but driven by populism, mercantilism, and protectionism. Now, if our end goal on the other side of this transition five, six years from now is to engage selectively with parts of the world, the TPP is a good framework to start from. 
Remember that almost every phrase and almost all the technical language in the TPP originated with Washington. This was a trade deal we wrote for ourselves to impose on everyone, and it was almost there. But the populace didn't like that, and that's why it got shoved to the side. So it's a logical starting point for whatever's next. In fact, Trump used the TPP text as the basis for NAFTA too. Uh, Peter, tr- speaking of Trump, um, dovetailing onto him, uh, I'm sure you know David Frum, uh, fellow Canadian. He actually just grew up down the street from me. Um, uh, he wrote an article after Trump's presidency. Uh, he's not a big fan of Trump, I don't think. And <laughs> no, no, he is not. <laughs> he wrote, and it was an interesting article because it said, it was, I can't, I, I want to say 13 or 14 or 7. He goes, you know, 13 things Trump did right. <laughs> I, I guess he might have been searching very hard in his mind to figure him out. And one of them was a very detailed section on his China policy. Um, to the uninitiated, including myself, uh, what what was good about the policy? Was it because it was so crazy? Uh, was he a mad King George? Was he, um, the Chinese were they afraid of him? Were his policies driven by smarter people who said, this is what you should do to stick it to the Chinese? Um, can you speak to that at all for us? Sure. So, you know, I've outlined some of the reasons why I thought it was worth trying for a partnership with the Chinese and worth trying to include the Chinese into the broader international community. Uh, I was part of kind of an association of thought leaders who could see the potential. And can can you imagine how we could solve things like Iraq and Iran and North Korea if the Chinese and us could agree to disagree on some issues, but kind of work hand in hand on some of the more vexing stuff? I mean, whether it's climate change or intellectual property protection, you know, having the two largest economies in the system on rules, that would be a big win. I was wrong. And Trump was the first national level politician with gravitas to say I was wrong and say that everyone who believed my way was wrong. I was wrong. And he changed the nature of the conversation. As we went from the 80s to the 90s to the aughts to the 10s, the coalition of people who were willing to try to work with China steadily whittled down for independent reasons. And by the time we got to 2015, it was really just the business community left. And so Trump kicked them out and got to where the rest of the country already was. Now, he didn't go far enough. I think we can all agree now because, you know, we had a tweet storm and we got the phase one deal, but then he never dealt with it again. And so it's been up to Joe Biden to basically go through Trump's tweets and build them into policy and run them through a grammar checker and actually implement them and incorporate them into the bureaucracy. And that is now all happening at scale now. But that probably wouldn't have happened unless Trump broke the ice. Do you think he did it on prayer? I mean, it was, is it dumb luck? <laughs> like, it just feels, it you feels know, like the I'm Chinese were I'm going to have to plead no contest on that one. Trump <laughs> is a lot like Elon Musk in that he has an idea and he tries to make it happen. Uh, but then 20 minutes later, he sees a cat and he's off. <laughs> well, he did argue against China since a long time ago, so it was probably an idiot fix. We have Peter Doran, who has joined us also for a question. Peter. Yes. Another Peter. Peter Squared. Go ahead, Peter. Hey, uh, Peter, I have always found your insight and analysis very thought-provoking, and I've really enjoyed the, the tete-a-tete that we've had here on the Maria Report today. Uh, I wanted to pick your brain and perhaps get your insight on uh, what I think is an emerging trend right now in the global economy. I, I know you've spent some time thinking about it. Uh, 
but it does look like we're stepping away from that uh, promised future of a borderless globalized world. And it looks like oh, yeah. countries, countries are now uh, teaming together and, and economies are becoming more tightly aligned around geopolitical influences uh, or interests, I should say. Uh, and I look at you know the question over the future of semiconductor production. Uh, how is that going to shake out? So I, I wondered if you could just uh, share your thoughts. Do you think that we are starting to see a fracturing economic world where uh, geopolitical uh, alliances or you know temporary alliances uh, are leading us in, in that direction? Absolutely. The, the question, I think, just to, to kind of focus what you're saying there a little bit more, is whether it's going to be national or transnational and have a regional feel. So the United States, uh, it's definitely not centered. In fact, I would argue, you know, to kind of play on Trump's top 13 list for Trump, I would say the single biggest contribution that Donald Trump has made in the United States is convincing the American right, the American hard right, the American populist right, the little bit racist American right, that Mexicans And that is, you know, the idea of integration with Mexico, the American right, now a non-issue. And I think that's brilliant. Uh, the question is, who else can be invited to the party? We do have a few trade deals out there that I think are very promising, specifically with Colombia and Australia. And I think the Japanese were able to cut a, you know, a humiliating deal with the Trump administration that they reaffirmed with Biden. So I think they found a way to kind of buy themselves in. It's an open question whether the Brits can, the Brits can swallow their pride and join the club as well. And then I think in a post-Germany EU, uh, the Scandinavian bloc is most likely to accede to some sort of NAFTA affiliation. Uh, that might be it. I would love, love, love for Southeast Asia to be part of the club too, but we're too far out from that, and that kind of gets wrapped up in that TTP question. If we can pull that together again in a reasonable time frame, then that is going to be the club that matters moving forward. Uh, beyond that, though, the clubs get really small. Uh, the Japanese might have been the core of their own, but they've decided that's not their path. Uh, Turkey has its own neighborhood, but not a lot of it is economically dynamic. With the Europeans in trouble, I can see France emerging from the wreckage, but there's only so far that the French can reach. Italy, Nigeria, maybe North Africa, but that's about it. Uh, and then, you, of course, you've got the Western Hemisphere that's kind of this dual area where they both don't care for the Americans all that much, but they really enjoy the the Americans provide kind of existing some sort of middle room. But the, the ages of the broad integration they're on, um, this might be a good way to think about it. Think of the world as it existed in 1987. You had a Western world that was American-anchored, then you had the Soviet world that was Russian-anchored, and then you had the monoline movement that was kind of playing both sides. What happened with the Soviet fall is we finally, for the first time in world history, brought in everyone to the same rules-based order. The three biggest institutions being China, Russia, and Brazil. And the growth that we have seen around the world since 1992 is largely because of the metabolization of the resources and the potential of those three countries. Whether it was for manufactured goods, for fertilizer, food production, whatever it was, those three are the ones that really moved the needle. We're now unwinding that. And so we have to take the hyper-growth of 1992 back in a changed demographic environment when we can't rebuild the Western world like it was during the Cold War. And so the question is whether there's some places with some demographic growth 
that can kind of align themselves with the United States. And that's where the hope for Southeast Asia, but it is not a done deal. Uh, anyway, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, I love what you do. Uh, and by all means, keep it up. Um, luckily, combating Russian information is a little easier than it was during the Soviet period, just because it's so obviously crap. I mean, you're, you're still going to get the blind ideologues who will believe anything that they think is anti-American. But for the most part, uh, it's just an issue of highlighting how ridiculous it is. And uh, you guys are great at that. <laughs> well, hey, I mean, it's uh, it's a low-hanging fruit. Uh, uh, being able to dismiss the Jewish neo-Nazi president conspiracy or Satanism as a real threat to the world. It's not it's not a, it's not a very nuanced position to take. Right. <laughs> no. And I'm glad you guys do it every day. Yeah. Well, thank you. And Colby, thank you. And Axel and the host, and everyone. Uh, we do hope you come uh, again whenever you'd like, you know, even if you're driving in the car. Uh, it's always a good time. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. <laughs> All right, are you are you up for time there, Peter? Yeah, I need to be going in a couple minutes. All right. All right. Well, I don't know. Last questions, Colby or Axel? Well, the question then is for Peter. Are we doing enough in deterring? Because you highlighted the uh, splendid isolation Chi finds himself in and uh, trying to, say, segregate himself from the rest of Chinese elites. Are we doing enough to deterring him by means of our posture towards Russia? We can always do more, but we it's always a balance. We need to keep the Germans in the game. We need to keep the Ukrainians in the fight. And we need to keep the Ukrainians online at least until the winter is over. At that point, the Ukrainians will have had six months to do deferred maintenance on all the equipment they captured at Kirsten and Izium. And there will be another 40,000 minimum uh, NATO-trained Ukrainians operating on weapon systems that are not even in theater yet. And we are going to get our Athens versus Sparta fight in May and June. So if you're going to buckle down, now is absolutely the time. And we're going to have a very good idea of just how this is going to unfold by the time we get to at the end of June. Wheel, wheels are moving right now in, in NATO uh, across uh, Europe to uh, ramp up the training, um, uh, the collective training of uh, Ukrainian troops, on, and especially, as you just said, Peter, on on platforms they don't even have. Amazing. Yeah, this, is, this is the fastest training program NATO has done ever. And so far, the Ukrainians are proving able, able and creative students. Yep. Again, thanks so much for being here, Peter. We do hope to see you anytime you'd like to come up. Uh, for our audience, please do um, go give Peter a follow and, uh, and, and read his stuff. It's great. Thank you so very much. No problem. You guys take care. All right. Thanks, Peter.